Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Gotham Gupta, partner at M13. M13 is a venture capital firm headquartered in Los Angeles that has invested in some of the most innovative consumer companies like Pinterest, Snapchat, Lyft, Bird, and Ring. Previously, Gotham was the founder and CEO of NatureBox a subscription online delivery service at home delivers all natural snack foods. Before that, he started his career as an early stage investor at General Catalyst when he was still in college. I had such a great time chatting with Gotham, so without further ado, here he is. Gotham, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming out of the show. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I, I was looking at your track record and you know, you, you went to Babson for entrepreneurship and you know, of course you became a very successful entrepreneur, but what was your first impressions of entrepreneurship and what attracted you to it? So I grew up in a household where you know, business and entrepreneurship was kind of the, you know, dining room or, you know, dining table conversation. So, you know, both my grandfathers, um, my grandfather on my father's side and, and mother's side had been entrepreneurs in India. Uh, and so from a really young age, we were exposed to business and, you know, starting a company and sort of the, the um, ups and downs of what that entails. Uh, and so I think from a really young age, I made the decision that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, maybe I didn't know what that word meant. Um, but uh, when I was a kid, I think I wanted to be, I, I just knew that I wanted to be in business and I wanted to start a company. Uh, and that's what really led me to Babson. Um, and, and while at Babson, just through, through chance, I ended up meeting some of the folks at General Catalyst and, and ending up, ended up going down the venture capital path before ultimately uh, becoming an entrepreneur. What attracted you initially to venture capital while you were meeting the people at General Catalyst? Yeah, it, it's actually pretty interesting. So I met, it, it was all by kind of luck and by chance that I met the folks at General Catalyst. So so first, um, you know, I wasn't really interested in venture capital per se, uh, but I had gotten to know the partners at General Catalyst because I was helping to run the entrepreneurship club at Babson. Uh, and, you know, we were always looking for speakers and judges and things like that. And so the, the people at General Catalyst were very kind to volunteer to, you know, speak at our events or to be a judge or, or on a panel. Um, and so I met the folks at General Catalyst and I honestly thought, wow, this could be a great way for me to learn from other people that have been entrepreneurs. The founders of General Catalyst had been entrepreneurs prior to starting the firm. Uh, and then I also figured, you know, I'd have this huge exposure to other founders and it could just be a great way for me to learn how those founders think and how they, you know, operate their companies. And so I actually, when I, when I started interning for General Catalyst, I actually wasn't really interested in venture capital. I just see, saw it as a means to learning more about starting a company. What made you leave General Catalyst in order to found NatureBox? So for me, I was at a, a pretty interesting place in my career where I had the opportunity to help 
General Catalyst start their West Coast office. And so I moved out to San Francisco to help do that. I stayed for a couple years, um, you know, helping to, to kind of grow the presence in San Francisco. Um, and then I, I sort of, I was still pretty young. Um, you know, I had a friend of mine uh, who uh, went to college, we went to college together, uh, and he was just about to exit his company. And we started just brainstorming and talking about, well, what would it be like if we started it? business together and what would we start together um so it was just very much uh kind of driven the decision to leave general catalyst and start nature box was very much driven by timing um you know it was just the right time the right place i felt like it was the right time in my career i had a person that I wanted to be in business with and wanted to start a company with. Um, I also felt really passionate about the idea. Um, you know, the, and, and th at that point, you know, really the idea, uh, behind what would become nature box was focused on health and nutrition. Um, and, you know, up until going off to college, I really struggled with obesity. Um, I ate, I had very bad eating habits, but luckily learned about nutrition and was able to lose 70 pounds in six months just through diet and exercise. Um, and so I had this deep personal passion for the product. Um, and so I, I just think everything sort of lined up, right? I had a co-founder that I wanted to be in business with. I had a, it felt like the right time in my career. It felt like the, you know, the right industry to, to go start a company in. Um, so it all kind of lined up. First of all, congratulations on, I know it was a long time ago, but on, on the weight loss, that's just something that's uh, incredibly hard to do and takes a lot of focus. When you were founding NatureBox, do you think that you were in a better position maybe than most first-time founders since you had a co-founder that already founded and exited and, and had a, a, a successful exit coupled with your experience working at a VC firm? Yeah, I think I think uh, it cuts both ways. You know, we had some clear advantages in that, you know, we had been around venture capital for a while. You know, I sort of, I, I knew a lot of different investors. Um, so that was a clear advantage and that helped a lot. And I also knew, you know, how to put a pitch deck together and you know how to what kinds of questions people would ask and things like that I think on the other the flip side of it you know in venture capital you're you're you usually it's a very small team I didn't have uh, a, like I wasn't managing anyone so I was at a point in my career where I was really an individual contributor and so I hadn't you know built those skills around people management and hiring and things like that which are obviously incredibly important skills to be an entrepreneur and so I, I always tell people People that you know it helped in some ways and it probably hurt in others and and that's just you know the reality right is you're you're always gonna have things that you're good at or, or strong at and then things that you're weak at and I think for me my strengths really mapped to my career in venture capital and the weaknesses also you know kind of came from the fact that I really didn't have exposure to some of the things that that would be important for, for entrepreneurs on the investment side, since you're now back in venture capital, how do you think about strengths and weaknesses of founders when you're when you're conducting due diligence in in, in your own process? I mean, I think the thing that that I look for is kind of self awareness, right? Um, and and that self awareness comes from, you know, are they 
able to talk about things that um, you know they they want to improve on uh, vis-a-vis hiring, right? So if you talk to a founder who, let's say, is not the most financially minded person or you know isn't great at recruiting, when you talk about their their hiring plan, is that reflected in the hiring plan, right? I also think you know have they picked co-founders and and people around them to complement the skills, the strengths, and weaknesses that they have, and so um, you know I think the by and large, the, the most the thing that I look for is self awareness. You know, because everyone's going to have uh, strengths and weaknesses, and and the specific strength or weakness doesn't really matter to me. It's really you know how do they uh, are are they aware you know of of who they are, what they bring to the table, and then how do they how comfortable are they to have people around them um, you know and and delegate and, and um, you know leverage the resources around them. Focusing on the strengths of a founder. How do you even analyze a founder's strengths and to see if, you know, they're the right person to actually build and start this company and and address this uh, this problem? Yeah, I, I do buy into and believe in sort of the whole founder market fit thing. I, I mean, I, I really do believe that, especially in consumer technology, um, you need founders that are passionate about the problem that they're solving. And, you know, you want missionaries, not mercenaries. So I definitely buy into that and and look for that. Um, I think, you know, the strengths of a specific founder become more apparent as you dig into the business, right? You know, and, and often, especially at the early stage, often the business is an extension of the founder, right? And so if the, the company is really good at, you know, let's say um, supply chain, right? So I'm just picking kind of out there examples, you know, that's likely because the founder enjoys spending time on that and has a skill set or a strength around you know, supply chain management, for example. And so it just becomes very apparent as you're looking at the business that, um, especially at the early stage, where the skill sets are for the founder, because that's usually shows up pretty quickly in, in kind of where the strengths and weaknesses are of the business. So back when you were starting NatureBox, when did you realize that you had product market fit and what were some of the metrics that you paid attention to since it was a subscription business to measure the to measure the health of the company? Yeah, and it's so funny because you know this is kind of an area where I think a lot of investors think about all the time as well, um, which is like when do you know you have product market fit? And and I do think that um, there's some truth to I, I know it when I see it kind of thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of it, it's, it's really hard to look at the metrics of a business and um, ascertain product market fit because the metrics are changing constantly. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of product market fit, in my opinion, is really driven by the tactics of what got you to that metric or to that outcome. You know, i give you an example, right? A business that's heavily paid dependent, you know, that has a great LTV to CAC is probably, you know, the, the strength of the product market fit is probably not as, as good as a business that has the same CAC LTV on a lower base, but is or, fully organic, right? And, and I think, you know, part of it just is, is sort of like 
how you determine, you know, uh, how the business got there and, and what's really driving the growth. Um, but I think, you know, in, in our business, like we really looked at the metric that we became very focused on. And I think it's a good one for a lot of entrepreneurs to focus on is payback. And so what's the, the time that it takes you to recoup your initial marketing investment? And I think that's a great metric because it's an aggregation of many other, you know, KPIs. And, and so the reason why we became really focused on that is there are many ways of getting to a certain goal could change something on the acquisition front you could change something on the lifetime value front um, and still get there and and so it really forced conversations around how to prioritize and what mattered in the business and and so i i just i'm a fan of KPIs that do that. That's sort of, that's the one that, that I think we kind of focused on, but I, I think every business is, is a little different. How do you think about growth in today's landscape? Because, uh, you know, of course you have in, in terms of like online acquisition costs, of course you have the duopoly and Facebook and Google, where I believe like 85% of online advertising goes straight to a uh, Google and Facebook, which is pretty nuts. And, but how do you, how do you think there's such increased competition in, um, in online acquisition? How should founders think about, about growth in terms of online customer acquisition? I mean, I think a lot of it um, goes to in the beginning, at the stage of the business, what you optimize around changes. And and the beginning stages, I really believe that things like retention and you know repeat purchase engagement are much, much more critical to get right. And those are things that are usually driven by product, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I think that um, it just depends on the stage of the business. If you're if you're already optimizing around paid or growth and the product isn't working, then by definition, you have a leaky funnel and, you know, that's um, just not a, a great place to be. Um, that said, if you're in a position where the product is working, then at least for me, I don't see as much risk in um, dependency on any one channel, because in my view, at the end of the day, I, you know, as a business, you have to focus. Um, and there are many examples of companies that um, were built basically on the back of one channel, right? And and so I just think, you know, the the need for diversification can sometimes be a distraction. And so I usually advise entrepreneurs like, you know, just make sure that the business is working and make that your focus versus diversifying the, you know, the marketing mix just to kind of make the investors happy, right? I think that's a great point in terms of diversifying marketing mix. You're the first guest that I've had on the show that started, I, I believe the first guest is, uh, that I've had on the show that started his career in venture capital, then became uh, a founder and CEO, and then came back to venture capital. What are some of the learnings and takeaways when you founded your own company that impacted you as an investor? And do you consider yourself a much better investor since you went through that founding experience? Well, so so I guess answering your second question first, um, I you know I feel like operators are not necessarily better investors, 
but I think they're more helpful and more value add to founders. And so, you know, look from, and there's tons of data on this and, you know, being an operator or being a founder doesn't necessarily make you a better investor. I do think though, it helps you resonate and empathize with a founder in, in a way that most career venture capitalists are just not able to. And so, so I do feel, and, and that's from my own experience, right? And I, I had, you know, uh, investors who were career VCs and, and operators. And, you know, so I've, I've kind of witnessed that on both sides of the fence. You know, in terms of the learnings and, and kind of the takeaways, you know, I, I think probably the biggest one, there's a ton of tactical things around how to build a company and how much things like focus matter, how much goal setting matters. Um, but I would tell you probably the biggest learning or, or takeaway um, is the line between success and failure is is a pretty thin line. And, you know, I think I, I truly believe that every company has the uh, potential to be a success. And and so, you know, when I go into meetings with founders, um, it's, it's really from the standpoint of trying to understand, you know, the business and understand the story, uh, as opposed to trying to pass judgment. Um, and, and so that's probably been the, the biggest takeaway is just a higher level of empathy for the founder, given that, you know, I, I really realize now that, you know, businesses, success and failure is such a thin line. And, you know, the job of trying to, you know, judge companies is, you know, a, a, a pretty unclear, you know, sort of world that we live in. So, so I, I don't know if that, that makes sense, but I would say the biggest takeaway is, is just that level of empathy. That does make a lot of sense. Why did you decide to join M13 as a partner? And and if you can give a little background on the fund. Yeah, definitely. So M13 uh, is a, a really fascinating story. It was founded by two brothers, uh, Courtney and Carter Riem, who started their careers out uh, at Goldman Sachs and then were operators. Launched, they launched their own consumer brand and sold that company. Uh, and about five years ago, started investing off their personal balance sheet in tech companies. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, they, they did quite well, you know, invested in a ton of great consumer brands. And, and then about a year ago, decided that they wanted to institutionalize um, and kind of raise a, a larger fund and, and, you know, build out the team. And really what M13 does today is there's kind of two core components of the business. So there's the fund side of what we do. And then there's uh, what we call our launchpad, which is really focused around incubating new ideas and new companies. Um, particularly in the um, CPG category. And sitting behind those two uh, parts of the business is um, what we call our propulsion team, which is uh, kind of a portfolio services group that is really from the standpoint of how do we help entrepreneurs be more successful? And, and you know, the rationale there is as a CEO, you're always doing something that you're not an expert in. And, and so how do we help you with some of those things and, and you know, provide the expertise of a broad set of ex-operators um, who you can tap into, you know, as much as you need. And so so that's kind of the story on M13. I really joined the, the firm because, um, you know, I love the strategy and the mission of the firm and, and the people. You know, I, I had the opportunity to get to know uh, Courtney and Carter for a number of years prior to joining the firm and, and you know, know them, you know, much 
better, got to know them much better during the process of, of talking about this and um, just thought that they're really special people and, and wanted to be in business with them and, and the rest of the partnership of M13. So, so you know, I, I didn't make a complicated decision. It was really driven by the, the people and, and, you know, the, the folks uh, around the table. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's a it's a people uh, business. And yeah, that's an incredibly inspiring story from uh, from the two brothers and uh, and, and, and how M13 uh, came together. That's really cool. Walk me through a little bit about your own due diligence process. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say every company is a little different. And, you know, obviously there are spaces that we know pretty well and, and you know, where we've been operators or where we've made a number of investments. And so in those categories, we have, you know, specific things that we're looking at and metrics that we're um, trying to understand. But I think first and foremost, I would say the process um, for, for us is really trying to understand the founder, the vision that they have, the quality of the business, and then the market. And that's that's kind of in no particular order. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, those are kind of the the four key areas that, that we spend time and that we're, we're thinking about. And, you know, I'd say every, every, you know, discussion sort of differs a little bit depending on the stage of the company and the sector. So I know that M13 is based in LA. I know you live in San Francisco, but why has LA emerged in tech innovation over the past few years? And what do you think about the future of LA? Yeah, I mean, I think LA is an incredible place to start a company today. Um, I think obviously there's a lot of excitement in the ecosystem around LA, and I think that that's well-placed excitement. I think what, you know, if I had to kind of boil it down, I think what you have happening in LA now is um, there's a much greater pool of talent, particularly around startups and engineering that existed versus 10 years ago. Um, And that's just by virtue of companies like Snap and Riot and things like that and Honey most recently and, you know, kind of growing and and growing to a pretty large, you know, scale in terms of number of employees. And then I think in addition to that, you have a lot more access to capital. You know, there are a lot more angel investors and kind of smaller funds in Los Angeles, as well as some of the groups in Silicon Valley traveling down to LA. And so, you know, I just think it's it's sort of an interesting moment in time where the talent uh, has continued to build and aggregate over time. And then over really probably the last three or four years, the access to capital and just the number of startup investors, um, you know, who are focused on LA has increased dramatically. And so I think those two things in combination has, uh, have, have, you know, led to a pretty interesting time to be in LA. What's your advice for founders that live in secondary or and tertiary markets that are outside, you know, the LA's, the San Francisco's and the, the New York cities? Yeah, I mean, I think um, probably, you know, what's what's really fascinating is there are funds now, and I think the uh, Revolutions kind of rise fund is a good example of this. There are funds now that are actually looking for businesses in, in some of those markets. And so, you know, again, I, I think access to capital is kind of being solved, uh, you know, smaller scale, and obviously it's going to take some time, but, but I think that's really exciting. Um, I think for founders living in maybe kind of smaller venture capital markets, my advice would just be continue to focus on the quality of the business. I think 
you know, uh, venture capital is such a competitive industry today that, um, you know, folks will absolutely get on planes and, you know, um, travel to go see a company. Um, and so it's really about quality, just continuing to kind of focus on on your business and, and building the quality of the business and letting that speak for itself. You know, I think tactically, the, the same way that uh, entrepreneurs in San Francisco get introductions to, to venture capital investors works just fine for, for entrepreneurs in other markets. I think you just have to apply the filter of, you know, is this a firm or a partner that's comfortable, you know, uh, with the travel and kind of making that kind of effort. As you say, like venture capitalists will still hop on planes. I do think that that mean in person, there's, there's nothing quite like it and there nothing will be, um, like it. Uh, but um, still to have uh, an opportunity just with communication out uh, uh, at, at such ease. Uh, how, so early stage founders, how should early stage founders think about board construction for their companies? I think founder founders need to have a lot of alignment with their investors on board construction. And, and obviously uh, so much of the construct of the board is outlined in financing docs. Um, and so, you know, but I think that said, the, the couple things that I advise founders is I do think having a board early makes, you know, probably after a seed round kind of makes a lot of sense. I just think it's good governance for the company. I think it forces good discipline for management teams to be able to, you know, bubble up, um, you know, and kind of see the forest from the trees. So, so one piece of advice is, is to think about a board sort of earlier than you might. The second piece is I always prefer a lot of operators around the table of a boardroom. And I, I think that, you know, VC investors can be incredibly helpful with thinking about what it takes to get to the next round of funding and, and really helpful in, in the mechanics of raising the next round of funding. But I do think the day-to-day of building the business is where operators are, are incredibly valuable, especially for the CEO who is often needing to have people, you know, a sounding board, right? And and often the CEO might not have that with their management team. Um, so the second thing I would say is just, you know, when you do think about a board, start to um, really think about operators. And then the, the third thing that I would say that's important around board construction and just board engagement is engage your team early, you know, and, and this is one where I've kind of learned from mistakes, you know, but we kind of went through times at NatureBox where we did have our management team sit in the board meeting and times where we didn't. And by and large, I think it's just great and much better to have your team, um, you know, sit in those board meetings and to have sort of everyone present for, for those discussions. Um, and so the only third piece uh, of kind of advice is um, just think about how to engage your team and, and how to get the most out of those board sessions. I think those are some great points, especially about having operators on your board. Now, at M13, I know you you invest both at the seed and series A. What are your expectations for companies at, at those two stages? Yeah, I it's so, I would say, and this is the other kind of thing about venture capital today is I feel like stages... Don't even matter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, especially in seed, because, 
you know, there's so many, you know, pre-seed and seed and post-seed and seed extension and all these things that, um, so I mean, look, the way I would broadly look at it is I think at seed, um, we tend to want to see a product. And so we tend to want to, you know, see, feel, touch a product. Um, and then at series A, we tend to want to see early signs of product market fit. And so that's sort of at a very high level, how I think about it. But I, I honestly think that, you know, these um, uh, labels uh, around financing rounds are probably becoming less relevant today than they were in the past. What are, what are changes in consumer behavior that you're focused on and that you see as investment opportunities and consumer trends that you're excited about? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of the areas that I'm spending some time right now thinking about. Um, so one is we, we think that, you know, uh, consumer needs across all categories are changing. And so we just think that there's um, a huge amount of innovation happening in the world of digitally native brands. And, you know, obviously the internet has become such a 